Welcome to this episode of Causes or Cures. I'm Dr. Eeks, your host. Hope everybody is doing well and that good things are happening in your life. Uh, all right, so obesity is in the news a lot, mainly because it's an epidemic, right? Here in the States and in other developed nations, obesity is a problem for both adults and sadly kids too, which potentially means more obesity-associated side effects happening at younger and younger ages, uh, which will affect quality of life, uh, not just years, but quality. And we had a tougher time fighting off COVID because obesity makes COVID worse. A ton of research supports that now. And uh, even the vaccines don't work as well in folks with obesity. Um, I just read a paper recently that described that. Obesity has also been in the news because there is a lot of chatter about the weight loss drugs. I'm sure you guys have heard about these. Uh, they've become increasingly popular for people to use. Um, and, you know, people are using them, uh, though we don't necessarily know all the side effects down the road, right? So I don't think I would call them a silver bullet by any means, certainly not yet. Um, and we'll talk more about that in the podcast. Uh, there's also something called the obesity paradox obesity paradox that some of you might have heard about. I don't know. We're going to talk more about that in the podcast too. But the short definition is that it's the finding in some studies of a lower mortality rate for people who are overweight or people with obesity who have other health issues such as cancer or heart disease. In fact, my guest today will talk about the obesity paradox in relation to a kind of heart failure and basically present evidence to show that there is no obesity paradox. My guest today is Dr. Naveed Sitar, a clinician, a researcher, and professor of metabolic medicine at the Institute of Cardiovascular and Medical Sciences at the University of Glasgow, and a leading expert in diabetes and cardiovascular disease research. So this podcast will focus on the most accurate ways to measure body fat, and how using more accurate measurements unravel the idea of an obesity paradox when it comes to a specific kind of heart failure. Uh, we will also talk about how tackling chronic diseases without tackling excess weight specifically is not smart and leads to more problems. And we'll talk about some of the new obesity drugs, how they could be used, concerns that people have, and we'll talk about what a good approach to obesity might look like. Um, you know, yeah, okay, everyone's talking about these medications, but what else needs to happen, right? Like there's a lot of other stuff that needs to happen, in my opinion. Um, so we'll talk about that. And I will link to Dr. Sitar's bio in the podcast description, um, as well as two of his papers that we will chat about in the podcast. Okay, so... All right, just give me a second here while we connect to Dr. Sitar. All right, so we're going to talk about a really important public health topic and medical topic. Um, but, but first, before we dive in to obesity and um, excess weight and that kind of thing and chronic diseases, can you first tell us a little bit about yourself? and the work you do and your interest in this topic. Yeah, thanks, Erin. Um, so I've, um, I'm have i a clinical academic, so I still see patients. Um, I my Most of my work is actually in trying to prevent cardiovascular disease. Uh, but as part of that, I see patients with uh, high lipid levels, cholesterol, hypertension, diabetes, and many of them living with excess weight. Um, I have done, uh, I've written over a thousand papers or contributed to a thousand papers, so a lot. Um, and I've had the privilege of working um, with colleagues in heart failure speciality, in autoimmune disease, uh, in reproductive medicine. Um, so I, perhaps more than many other clinicians, have worked with many different disciplines. And I think it, that's been a privilege, but it has also allowed me to see the impact of excess weight in many different specialities and then also pick up common threads within them. And I think that gives me a privileged position to be able to understand common risk factors and how they impact and, and their relative weightings. And also gives me a privilege to be able to potentially see where there may be common solutions. 
um, particularly at the public health level, Erin? Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's an issue everybody's talking about today, for sure. Um, And not necessarily knowing where to put their focus when trying to prevent it. I mean, I know that the treatments, they've come out with different medications and that's been in the the news and that sort of thing. But let's talk about um, your paper, Treating Chronic Diseases Without Tackling Excess Adiposity. Is that how you say that? Adiposity? I'm saying it like adiposity. Okay. (laughs) Um, Promotes multimorbidity. Um, And in that paper, you wrote um, that this can be excess fat basically can be a major player in the emergence and progression of many chronic illnesses. And also that sometimes um, symptoms of aging should be contributed to this excess body fat. I Can you tell us how did we get there? Um, that's, you know, that's probably the key question, Erin. I think we got there uh, in part, if you go back 30 years ago, um, rates of cardiovascular disease were substantially higher. They were almost about two to three times higher, you know, um, and particularly rates of dying prematurely from cardiovascular disease were substantially higher. And now about three decades ago, then we went, then we had obviously policies to try and cut smoking and then statins came on board and then antihypertensives, you know, at the same time. And for the last three to four decades, we've been um, upscaling smoking prevention. Lots of people have been put on statins, lots of people on antihypertensives at the same time, our prevention and our treatment of people living with cardiovascular disease has improved. And not only in people generally, but also in many conditions which have had um, high rate of premature cardiovascular disease. An example would be patients living with rheumatoid arthritis who also get premature cardiovascular disease. And as a result um, of substantial improvements in, re- in reduction of death from cardiovascular disease, many more people are living far longer than they did, say, 30 years ago. The life expectancy has gone up almost by a decade or so over the last 30 decades, you know, three decades. And partly it's because we're keeping people alive a lot longer. At the same time, we've made progress in lots of other diseases. So for example, I mentioned rheumatoid arthritis. Nowadays, people with living with rheumatoid arthritis are, are less often um, have as a risk factor smoking, particularly in some European countries where smoking's come down, probably in America as well. And, and and we've also recognized that excess weight is part of the cause of rheumatoid increasingly. So more people living with rheumatoid are heavier. In addition, we now treat them very aggressively at, at diagnosis with a dr- drug called methotrexate or biologics. And nowadays we don't see the really, and very rarely do we see the re- rare, you know, there's kind of severe joint disease. And because we're treating the inflammation so well, people are not dying when, within two to three years of cachexia driven disease, but they're living 10, 20, 30 years longer, and they're not dying of premature cardiovascular disease. So now we have a situation where excess weight is a bigger contributor to many chronic diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, like heart failure than it was 20 years ago, because there's less smoking. In addition, people are putting on weight faster, they're getting some of the diseases younger, and they're living longer with those diseases because we're treating them better and they're not dying from premature cardiovascular disease. But the one thing we haven't done is tackle the excess weight. That means they're living longer with excess weight. Not only that is the excess weight higher in absolute terms, but they're, they're, they're living with excess fat in their bodies for 10, 20 years longer. And that has physical aspects to it. It has metabolic aspects. It has affects mental health. It has um, joint disease aspects. And it has inflammatory aspects. And basically, that then means that excess weight is contributing to those individuals developing three or four or five other conditions. Fatty liver disease, osteoarthritis, perhaps it's linked to them not feeling so mentally well, depression. Um, You know, it's also actually, would you believe, chronic kidney disease is strongly linked to excess weight over many years. Heart failure is linked to excess weight over many years. So we have a whole series of patients in our wards, in our clinics, who have five or six conditions, and often three or four of those conditions are linked to excess weight. And we now know this. We know the statistics, Erin. You know, you look at it in the US. How many people are living with a BMI above 30 yeah. nowadays? It's about one in three in the population. Yeah. In 1980, it was about one in 15. Yeah. Yeah. You know, no, I mean, it's 
And then we see it in kids uh, and it's, exactly. yeah. yeah. And yeah. the fact that we see it in kids' hernias, the other thing is, you know, if you get someone who develops excess weight early on, it's not only the level of weight that they achieve, it's how long they're heavy for matters because um, excess weight has different, it, it can affect different things at different times. Very quickly with excess weight, your sugar goes up if you're susceptible, your blood fats go up. More slowly does it affect the risk for chronic kidney disease or heart failure or heart attacks. That takes, that depends on overall aggregated exposure over a lifetime to excess weight. So if you're, if you're developing excess weight sooner and you're living with it for longer, you're going to get more chronic the conditions as a result. And I think a lot of people miss that. Yeah. Yeah, no. And I, I think that's, it, it, it makes sense. You're treating these other chronic illnesses, but then just kind of letting the excess weight just go or not really, yeah, it's just there and we should be yeah. treating and it. And it's not to blame any, any individuals. It's, oh, not, right. to blame the, it's no. not to blame the people themselves. It's not yeah. to blame the physicians. I think part of the problem has been up until at least recently, many physicians are so expert in their area, but they're not experts in lifestyle. And equally, right. they often look at lifestyle and say, well, look at the research, you know, maybe they lose two or three kilograms and that's not necessarily enough. Yeah. But we've now reached a point where we do have some tools that may help people lose a bit more weight, with, you know, beyond three to four kilograms, but maybe 15 to 20 kilograms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for the first time in the, you know, Ever, we've now got some tools that are, you know, effectively chemical appetite suppressants, some of these new drugs. Yeah. As well as surgery in yeah. a select population that can help individuals. And it's a question of how, when do we give it? How do we give it? Is it cost effective? Mm. What, for what conditions? Yeah. And how do we train our doctors, not just to be specialists in their own area, but also to think about weight management early in the course of many conditions, yeah. prevent the second and third and fourth condition developing? Yeah. And uh, part of that is, talking to people and making, you know, people feel, um, comfortable, which not a lot of people are good at, you know, um, someone might feel very self-conscious or, uh, stigmatized. So that's a hard, I think teaching those skills and educating people. Um, yeah, no, you're completely correct. I think partly depends. I mean, some people are naturally very good at it. It's just their rapport. You know, you know, know, I often speak to my patients say, look, can I speak to you about your weight? And, And, And the reason I would like to do that is because, and you're right. I think 25 years ago or even 10 years ago, or even now, some physicians say, you know, to patients, go and lose weight. Yeah. And they leave the room and and and, and I, I bet you my bottom dollar, when they close the door outside, I say, oh my God, doesn't he realize I've been trying to lose weight for yeah. the last 25 years? I just don't know how yeah. to do it. Yeah. I, I, you know, I've tried my best in my life. And it's not that, it, so I think there's one element. I'm not just saying we use drugs or surgery. I think we can get better at lifestyle. Mm-hmm. I think we can be, we can develop much simpler tools to help people um, retrain some of their lifestyle aspects, maybe retrain their palate to enjoy different tastes, retrain to understand that they can do physical activity in different ways. You know, um, we just haven't done that well enough. So I think there's definitely things we can do, but we also need help from governments to really tap down on food industry because it's everywhere. I'll give you an example. I was watching a game of football, soccer, as you call it, in the US. <laughs> yeah. And it was sponsored, this cup final was sponsored by a major pizza-making company. And then when the adverts came on, it was a major burger-making company followed by a major alcohol-making company. It's everywhere, yeah. you know? Yeah. And a lot of people, for a lot of people, despite the best willpower, it's not enough. That You know, people get cravings and they sure. find it really hard to resist. Sure. And it's, uh, you know, over here, it's a busy lifestyle. I mean, people don't want to cook. Uh, local food is sometimes more expensive, even though that's that's uh, probably healthier for you. Um, I recently had a researcher on who talked about the food industry's influence over public health. Um, it's very interesting because, and you know, it's linked to the government, the lobbyist. It goes deep. Uh, mon- of course money, it does. Money is very powerful. <laughs> you've hit the nail on the head it's yeah. all about profit and it's all about money yeah and greed again maybe not to make blame but people when people have an opportunity to make money in excess and get away with it they will do it yeah it's another it's another feeling of human nature and the only way we can sort that out is by having proper policies to regulate to provide fair yeah. Um, and allow other parts of society to prosper. I mean, you, you know, I, I always think Finland is a brilliant example where they pay 
many more of their individuals far better. They have a much more equal society and they're the happiest nation in the world. They have yeah. been for the last six years. Yeah. You know, so it's policies. Um, what, but that's a, but not, let's not go into the politics. That, you know. <laughs> that's, a, that's another podcast. Um, yeah. I, in, the, in, in your paper, you talk about the disease process of excess body fat accumulation. Um, and you talk a little bit about BMI versus waist, waist circumference. Um, and intra-abdominal fat, not not just, I guess when people think obesity, they think of just how much someone weighs. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Um, yeah, no, I can. I mean, I think there's a lot of um, misconception. BMI is still pretty good for most people, you know. Um, so when BMI is, say, for example, well above 35, it's clear that people are excess weight. It doesn't matter what body shape you are, 35 BMI is high, okay? And it's likely that you've got that that individual needs help because by that stage you know you're talking someone who say would be my height you know roughly five or eight would be about 100 kilograms you know that's clearly you know for that individual or 120 kilograms for someone you know slightly taller bmi 35 uh, equally somebody at bmi 25 is probably okay it, the, i think the gray area becomes in between um there are a small number of individuals whose body mass index might be 30 but they're really quite muscular but it's not that many. It's a small number. So BMI is not bad. What we do recognize, though, is that if you put, if it's the waist circumference is most strongly associated with the risk for some conditions, particularly diabetes and particularly in women, more so than men. The reason being, when men put on weight, usually the same time the waist starts to go up. That doesn't necessarily happen for women. Women sometimes you know put more weight on their hips. So immediately for men, BMI and waist track closer together. For women, it's more waist. Waist circumference is a better marker of other things. And the waist to height ratio seems to be the best marker of a range of things. Height is a proxy for muscle mass, I think, and growth. Um, but waist, the reason we don't use waist circumference much in clinical practice is because it, it's got a bigger measurement error than measuring weight and height. Um, you know, if you use a tape measure, people don't really want to take their tops off. Um, where do you more measure your waist? time intensive. Yeah, it's a bit, and, and you know, to check weight change, you know, waist circumference change is not as accurate a weight change. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. but the other thing I would say equally is that, um, you know, we are going to start using probably waist to height on top of BMI for certain individuals. I think that probably is coming, but in select numbers mm. um, to help predict future risk. But the thing I want to step back, though, it depends what outcome you're looking for. For some outcomes, it's your BMI is just as good. And there are very few outcomes like that. But certainly, for example, deep vein thrombosis seems to matter. It doesn't matter where you put your weight. It seems to be, based on the genetics, it seems to be total weight matters. For osteoarthritis, it probably doesn't matter where you put your weight because it's a physical element effect on your joints. But where you put your weight matters a lot to diabetes risk, particularly, whether you've got conditions like polycystic ovary syndrome, um, hypertension, stroke risk, cardiovascular disease, heart failure, um, certain other conditions. So it matters to conditions where excess ectopic fat has the effect on particular organ systems that affects that disease, but not all conditions. But not it all. probably, yeah, it probably matters to the vast majority of chronic conditions. Okay, okay, and and I think people um, are aware that excess fat is not is not good. It's not, you know, in the long term can increase your risk for certain diseases. Um, I wanted to ask you about this one line that you wrote in your paper. While excess adiposity has been, has become a progressively more important risk factor, it might not be apparent in some standard epidemiological studies. Is that because of the hyper-focus on BMI? Um, yes. And actually, if you think about epidemiology, the best epidemiology is not just a cross-section as we have long-term follow-up. Yes. And if and particularly if you have long-term follow-up for 10, 20 years. So most of the studies that have given us data on risk of adiposity to outcomes have been based and the, you know, have been based on data that's been collected in the 80s and 90s and the 2000s and 20-year follow-up. And the vast majority have not measured waist circumference or waist to height ratio or waist to hip ratio very well. And that's why most of the data has been on BMI. Equally, there's been a secular change in weight and where, you know, people, you know, are, uh, so, you know, getting more overweight. 
And that's become most apparent in the last 20, 20 years where we have less prospective data. So I think the data that we often rely on has been a bit two to three decades out and hasn't had the best measurements. So we've probably less underappreciated the importance of race circumference to current outcomes. Um, you know, for example, as you as you said back then, you know, that there are, you know, lots of younger individuals with excess weight, but the impact on their outcomes, well, because they're young, will take 20 to 30 to 40 years to follow up. So that's been that's part the, of the issue, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah things move kind of slowly. Um, yeah. So let's talk about the your study on in the European Heart Journal, um, where you talk about these different measurements. BMI being one, and adverse outcomes in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. And I'm going to ask you to explain that because some people may not know what, what that means. Um, but you you also write revisiting, it's related to the obesity paradox. Um, so let's start there before we get into the link here between the obesity paradox and uh, heart failure. What is the obesity paradox? And I don't think it's just been really, it's not just uh, talked about in relation to heart disease, right? Okay. No, it's not. So let me explain it this way. It's um, in a number of conditions. And again, it goes back to data that was collected about 20, 30 years ago. In some ways, if, say 25 years ago, if you were to develop heart failure and it wasn't, you know, and we didn't have really many good treatments. Now, heart failure, when the heart is sick, um, the heart really, you know, there's a big inflammatory um, sort of signal from that. So the body becomes quite inflamed because the heart is sending out lots of uh, inflammatory proteins that stress the body. And one of the effects of that is actually to lose weight. There are chemical signals that the, the heart is releasing that hit the brain that suppresses appetite. And it also burns up fat, it burns up muscle. And, and if it's severe enough, you get cachexia, the process of cachexia, where you're actually losing weight because of illness. Now, we see that in all the cases. You, you know, you will know examples where either yourself or some of your, your friends or your relatives have been quite sick and they go off their food. You know, we see that all the time. But it often happens only for a short period of time. You know, say someone's got the flu. Yeah. I, I don't like my coffee anymore. I don't like that food. So if you've got a chronic condition like heart failure, where, for example, you have um, lots of inflammation and it's continued and sustained for a long period of time, and it's suppressing your appetite and burning your muscle and your fat mass, you're going to start losing weight. And what happened 25 years ago, very commonly, severe heart failure, patients lost weight very fast. And so if they, even if they started off, say, with a BMI of 30, if you measure them in a study and the BMI was now 23, they're the ones who are going to die within the next six months or two years. So they have a low BMI. And it looked like the people who had a high BMI at 30 were going to live longer. But that's often because they had less severe heart failure and also perhaps because they hadn't had the heart failure for as long. So it looked like in some conditions, people who were higher BMIs were living longer. But it's just because their disease, the inflammatory disease that they had or the, or their, or, or the degree of heart failure was less inflammatory. And the same concept happened in cancers. The same concept happened in rheumatoid arthritis, uh, where people with less severe disease didn't lose as much weight quickly, retained their weight, and live longer. Whereas people had very severe disease, lost weight quickly, and they're the ones who died. But if you, if you didn't follow them longitudinally, but just did a cross-sectional cut, as many people did, they looked at it and thought, oh, wow, people with the lowest BMI with heart failure died quicker. That means people with high BMI have a protective element. So excess weight is protective in heart failure. That was the wrong, we believe that was the wrong assumption. Okay. And it also led to a lot of people saying, we shouldn't think about weight loss in people with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction because it might cause harm. Uh, Our paper now says, wait a second, that may not be right. It might be completely the wrong assumption. Um, because if you measure adiposity or by a different measure, the waste, the yeah. height ratio or the waist to you know hip ratio, yeah. you don't see that relationship. Now, the reason you don't see that relationship is in part because when people lose weight because of disease, they often lose it peripherally rather than the waist. The yeah. waist tends to be stained. Mm. Um, so therefore, waist is a better measure of 
chronic adiposity in conditions like heart failure or like rheumatoid arthritis or even with aging. If you see older people, there's a thing called sarcopenic obesity. And you, you can see people, and I saw a few people, you know, even today, you can see them, they're quite thin in their arms and legs, but they've got, a, you know, they've got a big amount of weight in the central part. Cachexia, you lose weights peripherally, legs, but you often don't lose much weight centrally unless it's very, very severe. And I think that's what we're seeing. And, um, you know, and that also includes, you know, losing muscle mass in your thighs, particularly. Yeah. yeah. So, so before your study, just to recap, uh, an obesity survival paradox was observed in patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. So that was kind of what the, you were looking to see if that was true in your analysis. Yes, we, we okay. but we were in part, but also we were looking to see that actually were we getting the wrong signal from BMI because right. BMI is not capturing where your weight is. And it's also, it, you know, it's, it's a confluence of, of fat mass, muscle mass and other factors. And we thought that actually the people who have, um, well, or, or a better way to look at it would be to look at something that can capture the waist circumference. Because okay. waist circumference is less influenced by the degree of the severity of the heart failure. It's right. less influenced by the associated inflammation with the degree of worsening heart failure. And we and, and our results suggest that if you look at measures that capture waist circumference, either waist to height or waist to hip, you don't you do not necessarily see that paradox as much. And it therefore suggests to us actually that paradox is is probably explained by the fact that. Body mass index is adversely influenced by the severity of heart failure, which then leads to premature death. And it's and it's 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 the disease causing weight loss that's causing death, and it's not that excess weight is is causing is leading to better survival. It's what's known as reverse causality. Okay, and it's kind of like what appears to be is is not actually what's happening. Uh, no, exactly. There's an association. People are heavier, seem to yeah. survive longer, but yeah. people who are heavier have a less severe disease. Right. Whereas people who are lighter have more severe disease. So it's the disease that's causing the weight loss, that's causing the mortality. So you know, using BMI. So there's an obesity paradox. Now, you know, so what you what you whereas if you look at waist circumference, you don't see that as much. So that leads us to think that people who got severe disease are losing muscle mass and peripheral fat because of the severe disease but they're not losing central fat. So it's the disease severity that's causing the weight loss. It's not, it's not that excess weight is protective. So our main conclusion coming at the very end, uh, and we say this in the discussion, we think, and actually particularly in modern times, uh, Erin, nowadays see this cachectic process? It's happening a lot less in people with heart failure because we have several treatments now for heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. And, and for the listeners, Reduces ejection fraction means that the heart's pump pumping ability is less than the criteria called forty percent. It's you know, and effectively that means the heart the pump is actually more scarred, and often because they've often had heart attacks. Um, so there's the heart itself is damaged, so it's not pumping as well. Whereas there's another type of heart failure where the heart can pump well, yeah. but there's other factors that lead to the heart failure to materialize. Right. right. Um, so we believe, though, our, our, our paper in conjunction with other pieces of evidence suggests that actually in modern times, many patients with heart, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction are no longer losing fat or BMI or even you know waist circumference as fast as they used to because we've got really these modern treatments. Many of them now are living with excess weight. What we now need to do is actually do a weight loss, intentional weight loss study to see does that actually improve outcomes? So we want to do, so we really think to move the field forward to really, the best way to convince people, because a lot of people get confused with epidemiology, <laughs> even now some of the listeners will get confused with epidemiology, it's actually to do an intervention. And what we want to do, um, and what we suggest we need to do is take people living with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, who have a body mass index above 30, who are, you know, are on all their regular therapies, and we know that people living with that condition who are heavier also have worse quality of life. We want to do an intentional weight loss study using, for example, low-calorie diets. We want to see what impact that has. And if we're correct, intentional weight loss should actually improve their condition. Whereas what happens 
happened in the past was the disease led to unintentional weight loss, which is a completely different phenomenon. I see. Because of the inflammation. I see. They were and the same really thing happens. I'll give you another example just to really illustrate it. When we see patients, you know, I've seen patients, some even my relatives develop cancer. When the cancer becomes very, very severe, they can rapidly lose weight. And you can see them almost shrinking in front of your eyes over the course of weeks. They lose weight and then they die. That is the disease process causing appetite suppression and burning up your fat and your muscle. You lose weight and you die. So that's called unintentional weight loss. And part of that was the causing the obesity paradox. And that's completely different from intentional weight loss. Right. So that's what's caused the difference in paradox. And you controlled for the natriuretic peptides in the study. As a measure of severity of the disease. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it doesn't matter in terms I mean, the epidemiology, what you control, what you don't control for does yeah. matter to some extent. Yeah. Um, but I think two major things. One, our paper, there's another paper that also says something similar two or three years ago. And two, um, because we've got these brilliant therapies now that help people with heart failure, reduce ejection fraction, far less patients are getting this cachexia. This paradox is less apparent nowadays now, Erin, because 25 years ago, we didn't have, um, for example, SGLT2 inhibitors. We didn't have valsartan Secubitrol. Uh, nowadays, we've got drugs. beta blockers, valsartan Secubitrol. We've got spinal, you know, we've got MRAs yeah. and we've got SGLT2 inhibitors. Yeah. And nowadays, people with heart failure, reduced ejection fraction, live 5, 10, 20, 30 years. Maybe not 30, but certainly, whereas 25 years ago, they died within two or three years. Right. I see. I see. So, so it really was, though... Uh... I mean, again, your paper did, I think, emphasize the importance of these other uh, measuring tools, the weights, the waist circumference, yes, um, and that kind of thing. Um, so maybe we should think beyond the BMI. I mean, I know you mentioned the BMI was... No, we should. We, we definitely yeah. need to think. But it, it again, in all clinical practice, the question is, why do we want to measure it? So you're right. What we really should do is a study when we do a trial is actually take people with high waist circumferences. Yeah. And do an intentional weight loss study in them, not necessarily yeah. rely on the BMI. You might you're completely correct. Um, and, and that's exactly something we're thinking about doing. And that trial needs to be done. And we, we do have ways we can help people lose 10, you know, 10 kilograms by using low calorie diets. In fact, we use the same diet to show that type 2 diabetes is re is reversible or can sure. undergo remission. Sure. With intentional yeah. weight loss. Yeah. And there is an ongoing at the moment in, in another type of heart failure called heart failure with a preserved ejection fraction, they're trialing drugs that can also, um, where we think obesity is even more of a factor that can help people lose 10 to 15 kilograms. And that will report out in this autumn. So let's talk about solutions because I think a lot of people are interested in that. And, uh, you know, I, I, as I mentioned, um, well, the medicines that are in the headlines, you know, just over here, they, they, uh, are recommending not as a first line of treatment, but kids over 12. Now we see weight loss drugs um, for the, you know, <laughs> I saw your facial expression there. <laughs> um, so what, what do, what do we need to do? What do we need to prioritize? I mean, obviously prevention, those things are that are addressed or should be addressed with prevention don't happen in the doctor's office for a lot of the things that we need to fix. Right. I mean, they're, that's at the individual level, but there's a lot of other things. Uh, where should we, what should we prioritize? It's, I, I think, and this is a very, very contentious and difficult issue to talk about. I mean, you're completely correct. And, you know, there are clearly weight stigmatization. Um, some people in the media just don't like the fact that this is weight loss drugs and want to put all of our, you know, eggs into the prevention basket but clearly that requires governmental policy targeted at the food and drinks industry, which doesn't seem to be happening very much. And as you said earlier, they are very able lobbyists with huge amounts of power. And I, I will also say, for example, even in the UK, we're not far behind the US in terms of obesity problem. Our service industry, food industry, is now a major part of our economy. So it's a huge issue. It's a huge issue. So... I'm not saying we shouldn't target prevention. We really need to do. Uh, but having said even all of that, at the moment, for example, in the US, I'm just working it in my own mind. If, say, for example, there's 200 million adults, okay? 
and about a third of them are living with obesity. That's about 60 million adults already living with excess weight and obesity. You know, for them, a lot of them, prevention is too late. They've got it. And a lot of them, and some of them, quite a lot of them have got chronic conditions as a result. So what do we do with them? We do need to think about treatments. Do we allow them just to live longer? Good, they, most of them are now going to live 10, 20 years longer than they were 30 years ago because less smoke, statins, blood pressure, better second prevention. Do we just allow them to develop three or four conditions, arthritis, depression, diabetes, chronic kidney disease, heart failure? Or is there a scope that we think about earlier prevention in terms of life, you know, low-calorie diets or these drugs that might actually, for example, in a 40-year-old with a BMI of 32 who's just developed type 2 diabetes, if we were to give this drug that helps them lose 15 kilograms, could that actually, A, substantially improve their sugar to normalize it, B, then help them slow or delay development of kidney disease by 10, 20 years or never get kidney disease or heart failure or osteoarthritis, and then allow them to work longer and live more fulfilling lives? So those are the kind of questions that we need to work. And do how do we provide that evidence that this is what we will see? That's where we need to go. And it's not just with diabetes, Aaron. We, need, we can extend to heart failure, as we've just discussed, to some autoimmune conditions, like psoriatic arthritis is very strongly linked to obesity, polycystic ovary syndrome, osteoarthritis, sleep apnea, fatty liver disease. You can mention the vast majority of chronic conditions has to some way linked to excess adiposity. I think so um, that's what we yeah, that's what we need. We need the evidence that a lot of these conditions can be improved. And in addition, we can improve quality of life and cost effectively reduce other medications, prevent future complications and help workability of people. That's what we need to achieve. The sorry state, having said that, is does that mean 50 to 60 million people are going to be on these drugs? Right. Well, I, I think that's the, the debate why some people and I don't think I'm kind of I take your position that the it's not going to be the same uh, approach for everyone. I mean, there are people out there who probably could lose weight on their own with, you know, discipline that takes lots of discipline that takes a lot of um, uh, it's hard. It, I mean, it, it's, it's hard to do that, but it's, it's not easy. People need to understand that if you're going to try. It's to not easy, but you, you, you are completely right. Uh, correct. So in the direct trial, for example, even after, um, you know, after about two years, still 33% of diabetes remission. So around about my, my feeling is after low calorie diets, 10 to 20% get it and sustainably lose that, keep, keep that weight off. And, you know, perhaps don't get diabetes for another 20 years or, or, or recurrence or 10, 20 years, you know, but I also think the way we talk about lifestyle and dietary intervention is too complex for most individuals. And we, we miss out some simple things like, oh, and, and we haven't put, implemented this. And this is one of my research goals. One of the things we miss, Erin, is for diet, a lot of people actually often have three or four main things that they could easily change. But unless we say to them that you need to, this is, we have to be very prescriptive, change from here to there, and it will take you three to four weeks and you have to persist, and it might be involving you. You have to retrain your palate to enjoy this new taste. For example, you have to retrain your palate to enjoy eating tomato, cucumber, lettuce, uh, bananas that you've never really enjoyed. Now, not everyone will get it, or, or a fiber-rich cereal that you've never really enjoyed. But you've got to tell them that that is possible, but that your your palate or your tongue takes about ten to fifteen exposures for it to start to enjoy the texture and the taste and that you can get to a point from A to B that you will enjoy that food just as much as you enjoy your current food, enriching your taste buds, and that then reduces the the kind of density of your diet, if that makes sense. Yeah, and, of course. And I, I'm, not, I'm not speaking out because that's what I've done. 25 years ago, I was a, a little bit heavier. You know, I used to have sugar drinks, yeah. eat chips at the canteen most, you know, French fries. Yeah. Uh, eat more, you know, uh, not French fries. What would you call chips? Uh, potato. Uh, potato chips. Potato chips or fr French fries and potato chips. Oh, chips! I, I think you call French fries. <laughs> yeah, French fries. French fries are, are chips. So, so I've had to retrain my palate to a fiber-rich cereal, to eat more fruits, so on and so on and so on. And and as I've evolved, my my quality of my diet has gradually enriched, and probably I still eat the same volume of food. It's just less dense. Less dense. Yeah. Well, that's great that you that you were able to to do that. I think too. But, um, you know, some people yeah. are on medications that cause weight gain or increase in appetite, right? So it's, I don't think it's 
easy for everyone. I, I do understand there was criticism over here when people say obesity is a disease. I know that there was criticism on that because they're like saying, oh, that takes away power from the person to yes. make a yeah. change. But I don't think it has to be so black and white. Like I, we tend to view everything as so like simplistic. Uh, maybe somebody can make a change in their life and significantly lose weight. Maybe somebody else, the best approach is this drug. Uh, maybe it's both. I don't know. Um, but I don't no, think it has to I be think, I think I think it is both, but I think it's more than that, Erin. I think it's it depends where they are in their life course history. Yeah. So, oh. you know, if you could, yeah. So, for example, you know, 25 years ago, I was 30 years old. I wasn't that heavy. I had the opportunity, both my parents had, you know, developed type 2 diabetes. So I knew that I was on the fast track towards diabetes. So that's why I started to make changes. Plus, I've enriched my life in terms of physical activity. The dog helps, cycling, da da da, da and so on and so on. Small progressive changes have helped. So if we can capture people before they get excess weight, and you know, if we can, you know, some people will get it. If we can do it better, if we can capture some other people at the point of diagnosis and and then give better lifestyle advice so they don't get it. If we other other people will require interventions at different stages with different times. And I think in 10, 15 years' time, we'll have a range of drugs that can help if if the lifestyle parts which need to improve and even if they you know even if not perfect even if they help to delay things for people that's great but some people may 10 years later require something that helps them stop that craving that helps them you know get control of their appetite and their cravings to lose a bit of weight and sustain weight loss um and in 15 years time if as long as these drugs are safe I think we'll be using them, you know, much more to help people control the appetite unless we change the food environment. Because despite our best efforts in terms of retraining palate or whatever we prove, there'll still be a proportion of the population, maybe 30 to 40%, for where, for, in whom their life context will be too difficult, that willpower will not be enough. You know, and that's the problem. Um, so... And that's what we're grappling with. All of you know our health profession, our health professions, our health systems in the UK are grappling with this. Mm. Um, um, the US, you know, um, oh, yeah. you know, a lot, a lot of the people who are well-to-do, you know, you've a lot of people who've got a lot of money who are well. That's right, because the, the drugs are expensive, so they're not yeah. available yeah. Uh, to a wide portion of the population for for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and um, so the the better off are now taking these drugs because yes. it gives them appetite control. Yes, they were this. They're always they're like talking about it. You know, how everybody in Hollywood. Obviously, that's yeah. not true, but they're just saying everyone in Hollywood is taking it. What they can afford it. Uh, yeah. Lots of people would like to take it. They just uh, it's very expensive. Um, I mean, but the other thing is with these drugs, and I'm again thinking about you know the the kids over twelve. Uh, the long term side effects are something that you know lots of people are concerned about. But also, just if you stop it, does the weight yes. comes back on? Is that it does come back on at the moment in the way that we've done the trial? So, talk. Let's talk about safety. But you're completely correct. So, um, in I think probably in November, towards the end of the year, we will have one of the long term outcome trials for one of the. It's called the Select trial. Um, semaglutide given to seventeen and a half thousand patients in a randomized placebo controlled trial, in patients living with coronary heart, you know, cardiovascular disease and excess weight. And that will be five-year follow-up. So we'll get more and more long-term outcome data. I mean, of course, these, these drugs at lower doses have been used in diabetes for the last five to 10 years. Yes, yes. Uh, but not for uh, obesity. Or, not for obesity. Right. So that, that trial called SELECT is the first big obesity trial ah. with a drug that should lose 10 to 15 kilograms. Okay, okay. So... That's the key. And what we hope to see is that, um, you know, we will see nausea and vomiting early on. What we hope is that continued um, no increased risk of something called pancreatitis or pancreatic cancer or other cancers, because we didn't see any of that in the diabetes studies at lower doses. So if that if the safety elements are really good and in addition, the drug may, um, you know, prevent cardiovascular disease or strokes or heart failure and prove quality of life. You know, and the net benefits substantially outweigh any tiny little, you know, side effects, or whatever. Then it, then it will rapidly, it will ramp up the demand for these drugs. Now, I'm not here to sell these drugs, you know, I, but they are important tools that we do need that can help lots of our patients. You know, right. It's, 
it's for the companies to sell their own drugs. It's for us to evaluate them with the best possible evidence and work out who do we use them in, when do we use them, and when is it cost-effective, particularly in the UK where the NHS defend, depends on cost-effectiveness and we don't have a big private health service. Whereas in the, in the US, it'll be somewhat different. Yeah. You know, that, you know, and the price and the cost of drugs is often much higher in the US yeah. because it's a yeah. bigger private yeah. system. Very much so. so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, and ideally what we really want is five or six different types of these drugs and then and there's a bit of a, a, a competitiveness so the prices come down mm. um but but that still leaves a bad taste in the mouth if a pardon the pun if in 10 years time or 15 years time a third of our nation are on some chemical appetite suppressant to help cope with the environment to prevent chronic obesity and chronic multimorbidity right is that where we're heading well it may well be it may be it may be that's better it's, than it's not well, right. That's that's I guess the perfect is the enemy of good type of question here. Uh, yeah, because it mean, may be because look look at the situation now. About the vast majority of patients in our clinics, uh, particularly in our hospitals, admission they're on fifteen drugs. A lot of them are living with excess adiposity and or obesity, you know, and that's a major cause. And it's leading them to have fifteen drugs, you know, or ten of those drugs. If if in twenty years time a third of our patients were on these drugs, on you know or on these new chemical appetite suppressants, but then had to have less of the other drugs and less arthritis and less fatty liver disease and less sleep apnea or hypertension, is that that might be actually okay, you know? And more of our patients, our individuals in society, are feeling happy about themselves, got control of their appetite, are more productive for the economy, you know. Those are the decisions that we're heading towards. But it still causes lots of consternation in the media, in some circles, and people and, and other places saying, for goodness sake, why are we giving these drugs? It's up to the individual. You know, you know, all of these issues are, are coming right. forth. Right, right. And I think some individuals uh may not want to stay on a drug for you know a prolonged Absolutely. period of time. And that'll impact yeah. their decision. Um uh but and, I, and going back to safety. Uh, it yeah. may be that 20 years of that treatment may does reveal something that we didn't see sure. in five to 10 years. I don't know. Right. So giving it to a 12 year old to cope with their appetite so that they have it, you know, and, you know, we don't, well, I don't really want it's, it's not first line. I think it's just the, the meat. I think people presented it that way, you know, in headlines on social media, but I don't think it's, it's not like they come into the doctor's office and it's like, Oh, take this. I think it's yes. tried other stuff first and things didn't work. Um, or I think that's how my interpretation of it. Um, but no, but, but yeah. you're right because the only other thing that may work, you know, in a young individual, particularly if they're coming to the doctor, their BMI must be, you know, their level of adiposity must be so extreme to yeah. have brought them in the first place. So they're on a very rapid weight gain trajectory. Yeah. The, the other options would be lifestyle, but it's very hard to change. It's almost like it's almost like changing a super tanker of learned behaviors, which yeah. is within the family as well. Yes. To not only not only slow it down, but to try and reverse that is really hard. Yeah. If that makes sense. Oh, no, but it does. It can be done. It can be done. But then the other options are bariatric surgery. Yeah. But again, that has lots of issues. And 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 then other than these new modern drugs, what do we have? Drugs that cost three or four kilogram weight loss, which is not very much, or four or five. We need to think outside the box and do more clever studies to see how yeah. we can capture both lifestyle and drug, you know, with these appetite suppressants in clever ways. Yeah. Yeah. I think too, I, I mean, I, this is just my own experience, but like kind of the, the addictive nature of food and like the, it can be very comforting to eat certain foods and the. Absolutely. It's always, it, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's just sometimes I wonder if we taking, I don't know, the way people treat addiction and kind of, I'm sure it's been done, but just uh, trying that more like kind of like, uh, Oh, you're gonna feel this craving, but this craving is like a bell-shaped curve, and then you just get over that hump, and then then it'll get easier as time goes on to avoid that craving. Um, and that's something that worked for me in my past. In my uh, just no, you you're, you're completely correct. And again, it, it's I, lo I love that concept of bell-shaped curve because that's what I think about when I talk about retraining the palate. You have to undergo a little bit of an obstacle initially, and then it starts to get, and then it becomes yes. comfortable. Yeah. So it's the same thing, and it's the same thing with physical activity. You know, people aren't physically active, starting to walk or play, yeah. 
becomes uncomfortable and then they start to gain a bit of muscle strength yeah. and it's maybe a bit of enjoyment. It's exactly, and I think that bell-shaped curve, actually, you've given me an idea to try and <laughs> capture that in some of our, some of our, you know. The visual helps. Visual, yes. You know, visual helps. Learning from individuals. But I would say that definitely works. And I think there's a window of opportunity for many individuals. I do worry that once your body mass index or whatever you want to use, once it gets to above about 35, mm. the stomach is so stretched that the ability to, to change, you know, because what happens is when you start to eat, you send a chemical to your brain that makes you feel full. And that's the chemical we're replacing with some of these drugs. But when your stomach is so stretched, can we actually reverse that to be able to shrink the stomach to get those signals? I don't know. So I think there's a window of opportunity to a certain level of weight is my personal feeling. I don't know if that's definitely true. There are some studies that have looked at this and provide some evidence that that might be the case. So there's a window of opportunity where we can train people, and we, but we just don't do it at the moment. We, we, you know, we treat people when it's far too late and then their only option is either surgery or drugs. Or, or and lifestyle is only having a small part and many people fail the vast majority and and what happens is there's a learned stuckness a lot of people come to our clinics within their context of life they tried so many things and they don't believe that anything will work for them and they're not they're not open-minded to anything a because we've never explained it well to them in the first place yeah. and b they've tried themselves with 25 different diets and they've yeah. always put the weight back on so they don't believe that you've got anything to offer them yeah. You know, and they're disheartened and their mood is down and they just don't, you know. Yeah. And I think that that also reflects the what they're experiencing in maybe mainstream society, too. Um, yeah. Because that can be very hard and um, people can be very mean, like just yes, mean. Absolutely. And like, oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah um, so you're somebody's uh, impulse might be to hide rather than try because they don't feel like, you know, people are on their side. No, that, that's and and you know when you're completely correct and it's true and again it's stigma. It's, they do hide. They hide from many aspects. They hide from yeah. you know that their friendships, their ability to you know even go for certain jobs affects some people a lot of people's self esteem and that then affects yeah. many other aspects of their life. Yeah. And there was you know there's some beautiful studies out there now that show you know there was a study for example in the Lancet a couple of years ago ten year follow up of a trial on diabetes. And it's not it's not the intervention, but inter one of the interventions was bariatric surgery. And I'm not advocating this is the point of it. The point was, though, there was a 20 kilogram difference that that intervention led to compared to medical behavior. And over 10 years, if you follow those individuals who were about, on average, 20 kilograms lighter for about 10 years, maybe about 15 kilograms on average. At the end of those 10 years, those people with diabetes who had that intervention were lighter. They had better self-esteem. They had more vitality. They had less chronic pain. They had huge, huge better quality of life. All the things that means that they probably felt better about themselves, had less symptoms and more get up and go, they were all there. It was yeah. completely evident. Right. And they had far less cardiovascular outcomes. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. What's not well, to like? The quality of life too. Um, there's a lot of things, you know, these chronic illnesses you might be able to treat and keep from progressing but you know there might be side effects and like there's there's lots of stuff uh the quality of life i think that's really what adding more year quality years to your to your life like your Absolutely. health your health span yeah and and going back to the beginning of the conversation we talked about you know um you know you know i'm involved in trials which is adding newer treatments you know new lipid lowering drugs um you know new treatments for atherosclerosis which is great you know we still need new treatments but i'm i what the point of that paper was yeah, that's fine, but a lot of these treatments don't make you feel any better. Whereas if we were to treat the weight loss, not only could it prevent, it's relevant to some of the chronic diseases because it's cause, it is a partly a cause of those diseases. But if we treat the weight loss, you also get people feeling better. You don't get that with a statin, with an antihypertensive, right? You know, or or you know, with uh, necessarily with lots of other treatments, right? You know? Yeah. You do get that with weight loss drugs more so than nearly any other drug you get. Yeah. You know? Well, uh, thank you for that. I, I mean, I think there's definitely room for uh, to be creative here and to um, get rid of all the shame, you know, and really just be there to, to help people come up with creative solutions. Um, 
make people feel that are struggling with weight loss that, Hey, I'm on your side. Um, Absolutely. I'm doing this for your health. That's it. Like um, your, your self-worth stays the same, no matter what. I just think just yeah. like, even just basic communication around this topic can improve. Um, but we it can, to, but, yeah. but I, but the key thing is we, as, so I think the three key things for me would be okay. definitely imp- helping people better prevention tools so that, we tell them about that journey at an earlier stage when they have a more a greater plasticity to be able to adopt those changes and we explain it better. Like that bell shaped curve concept that you mentioned then. It's the same for diets, the same for activity. So that's number one. Number two, for the people who are further along, if that doesn't work, we at least now have tools that can capture appetite better. What we need now is 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 governments and health authorities to do the relevant trials to prove the benefits and yeah. to use these at the right time in a cost-effective way. Yeah. Um, so that right. we don't have to keep giving, lo- you know, we don't have to have people inevitably developing four or five diseases in part linked to their excess right. weight. Right. And we get that quality of life benefit. Yeah. So that's the kind of the thing. Because that's kind yeah, of what exactly. I'm seeing over here. It's like just wealthy people have access and that's kind of it. And that is, that's going to worsen health inequalities. I mean, yeah. the greatest excess levels of weight in our community are in the people who are living in the most deprived communities. Yeah, yeah. By far. Yeah. So, and taking on the food industry. <laughs> and yes, that's, <laughs> that's tough, but. Well, um, I'll leave, I'll leave that to you, Erin, to tackle the food industry and the policy <laughs> and the government. I'll put on my, I, my war paint for that one. Do that because I tell you, no country really has succeeded. Uh, well, I, I I don't see it. Well, maybe the sugar tax has been the one example that maybe, but beyond that, nothing. Yeah. Well, it was hard. I mean, taking on the tobacco industry was a long time. Um, I mean, they yeah. they invented their own science. Like that, the the tobacco industry actually coined the term junk science. They were, you know, and they they originally called, oh, secondhand smoke isn't that dangerous. That's junk science. That all came from them. It was kind of a that whole history kind of shows you how you can weaponize these terms to yeah, no, prevent change. Uh, yeah. But yeah, but I think if people are really dedicated though and want to make a change, they can make it happen. You just have to fight for it. We And we have to fight for it. Yeah. I, I do. I do just worry that, that, you know, the food industry has become so powerful, so big, so much part of many countries' economies. Yeah. Well, there's that. That, it, that, it, that it's now got such a hold on, on governments. That yeah, is hard to un, uh, you know, yeah. to it's an uphill you know. battle, but you can win uphill battles with the right strategy. <laughs> yeah, but it might take a few decades. Yeah. <laughs> again, that means again we need tools now as well. So yeah, no, I, I mean, again, I, I, you know, I, you know, the final thing is, I work with some of the, you know, the the industries that make some, you know, the pharma companies that make some of these, you know, involved in trials. You know, I consult for them, but I also do lifestyle trials. I've done, you know, weight loss trials and diabetes and pregnancy, so I can see the whole picture. And I've also tried to work with government. Um, so we just need to be very sensible, mature, look at the evidence and and help our patients and our populations in a way that is meaningful, beneficial and improves quality of life. I think that's the absolute key. All right. Well, we'll see where we are in. Uh, maybe you can come back on the podcast if it's still around in like five to 10 years. <laughs> we'll see where I'd be we... delighted. I would be absolutely delighted <laughs> any time. Uh, you know, even next year, if after, for example, yeah. Select or some of these trials come out. Oh, you know, are you? You're working on that trial. I didn't know that. I'm not involved in select. I'm involved oh. in some of the other trials called Surpass. Oh. Okay. And, and so I'm involved in. Um, yeah. That, that's going to come out in two, three years time, and yeah. another trial is just about to start. So I'm involved in some of the big weight loss drug trials. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. In the executive, yeah, executive committee and stuff. Definitely. And thank you for your time today. I'm glad we got to connect. Um, Absolute pleasure. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I look forward to sharing this one. Um, and enjoy. I know it's late there, but I do appreciate you no, jumping no on. I've been watching TV, and the dog is still. The dog is. <laughs> my dog is on my couch as well. <laughs> yeah, she's completely. Yeah, he's my yeah, podcast that... assistant. So. Oh, yeah, she, what kind of dog? Yeah. She's but... a labradoodle. I have a golden doodle. Oh yeah, so. Sunny. Oh, she's cute. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. Well, Brilliant. thank you so much. I really appreciate this. Absolute pleasure. Okay. Take care. Nice. Take you care. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for sticking around and listening to the podcast. Hopefully you found it helpful or at the least found something interesting. Uh, please feel free to share, subscribe, share with friends, post on social media with your thoughts, and feel free to tag me when you do it. That's cool. Um, I just want to say one thing because I talk a lot about obesity from a public health perspective. 
And there's a lot of debate right now over how we should frame discussions around obesity. So I'll just say this, uh, what a person weighs and the words we use to describe someone's weight is a sensitive subject for many. I mean, people can be super cruel and judgmental about it, which to me is just bullying. It's just a form of bullying. Um, I mean, I struggled with an eating disorder for years and my weight went up and down. Um, I would never have called myself fat, but I dealt with self-worth issues related to my weight and trying to, you know, obsessively control it. Um, and I tried to hide my eating disorder. I had bulimia. I tried to hide it like a criminal, meticulously cleaning up after a crime scene every time I binged and purged. Uh, and with it came a lot of shame and guilt. And for the longest time, the only relationship I could have in my life was the one with bulimia. Uh, it really just hijacked my mind and my life um, and led to uh, some serious self-destructive behavior. And it took me a long time to find my path to healing. And it was a somewhat unconventional path. I'll say that, um, you know, off the top of my head really quick, like one of the most helpful things for me just to get out of the cycle was to treat my binge and purge episodes um, like a drug addiction, because that's what it felt like to me. Um, I digress a bit, but it wasn't easy. But what I'm trying to say is that I understand the sensitivity around weight and how it's linked to self-worth. Uh, and we don't live in a really nice society all the time. I get it. And I'm sure it's worse for people who struggle with excess weight. Um, that said, we can't be so cautious about offending someone or everyone that we are afraid to have conversations about obesity because it is a major health issue that is linked to myriad other health problems and diseases and that directly impacts a person's quality of life, right? And more health issues most likely means that you need more health care at least one day. And that isn't becoming affordable anytime soon, <laughs> at least in the U.S. Um, because, you know, of those guys, the pharmacy benefit managers, uh, they're called the middlemen and the drug companies. They, they do an excellent job of keeping it pricey, right? Don't they? I mean... You always see a GoFundMe account pop up in America um, just for like a family that's, you know, pretty good. Like they're not millionaires, billionaires, but they're pretty good. But they get hit with a health issue and then all of a sudden they're like losing everything and they go to GoFundMe. I mean, it's it's pathetic. Um, that's another podcast topic, right? Anyhow, if we start avoiding conversations around obesity and its potential health effects because we're you know, so scared of using the wrong words. Uh, well, I think such an approach will actually hurt more people in the long run. So in terms of what words to use, uh, I mostly say people with obesity. Some use plus size or people of size. Um, and, you know, people, some people are not so nice um, and use, you know, more insulting words, I'm sure. Um, someone told me to use people in larger bodies, but you know, I had a conversation with my mom and I'm like, I, honestly, that would not make me feel good, but I don't know. You know, I am happy to change my words or use whatever words people suggest are best. Um, you know, just let me know what they are. I'm, I'm happy to, to do that. It's not like a big ask on my part, but the most important thing to remember is that obesity is a population-wide epidemic and it is impacting people at younger and younger ages, kids. So we have to really talk about it and try to come up with strategies that involve more than just drugs, right? It's not just gonna take the drugs guys um, to get ahead of it. We need multiple strategies to do this. And for the record, it's never cool to judge a person's worth by their weight. That's just ignorance. It's a form of bullying um, and fat shaming doesn't work guys. Um, you know, I see it on social media, I see it in real life, but it doesn't work or do anything except propagate negativity. Um, how do I know that? Um, well, because being the kumbaya species that we are, uh, we've done it for years, for years. Like if you're fat shaming right now, you aren't bringing anything new to the table. Um, and if it worked, we wouldn't have an obesity epidemic, but we do. So if you're doing it, you're just a bully, 
and it's time probably for you to get a hobby and, you know, develop yourself. At the same time, geez, I use that phrase a lot, but at the same time, society, people will always, always use words and some not so nice ones to point out excess weight. Uh, Because again, being the kumbaya species that we are, that's what humans do. That's what some humans do. You know, dogs don't do it. Horses don't, cats don't, birds don't, but humans do. And as much as we hope to create a more empathic society that communicates empathically, there's only so much you can control, right? So at the end of the day, you'll be much better off if you can make yourself immune to the words or work on your reaction to when you hear them, like separate your self-worth from all the garbage and don't focus on the stupid bullies um, who are fundamentally unhappy people uh, because they have to bully people to feel good about themselves. Like that's pretty sad, right? And, and, you know, put your focus where it counts um, on becoming a healthier, happier person. By the way, um, speaking, this is kind of a funny story. Speaking of humans always finding words for things, uh, my Nana, God rest her soul, she was a character. And when she commented on someone being overweight, she used the words good eater, (laughs) good eater. Like she was trying to put a positive spin on it. Um, You know, she'd be like, that Ellen, Aaron, she's a good eater, isn't she? Good eater. So so whenever my Nana called me a good eater, uh, you know, and you get you, I mean, she always gave me treats because she was my Nana. Like that's what Nanas do. They give their grandkids treats. I was like, ruh put the fork down, Aaron. You're shoveling it in like you have a tapeworm, but you don't. Um, <laughs> anyhow, memories. Um All right, and now here is a random quote to close out the episode because I just babbled a really long time, sorry. Uh, This quote was from Alice in Wonderland, mainly because I love to quote from Alice in Wonderland. That's the only reason, Uh, but it's it's a great movie. It's lots of symbolism. All right, here it is. If you drink much from a bottle marked poison, it is almost certain to disagree with you sooner or later. Hmm. True that. Avoid the... uh, bottles marked poison. (laughs) All right, guys. Uh, Hopefully I'll see you here next time and wherever you are, day or night. uh, Hope you have a good one. All right. Bye.